following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. When Yvonne and I uh, were entertaining our children at the very young ages of three, five, and seven, she was so devoted to the kids, it was difficult for her to leave them especially knowing, of course, that, that she would be putting them into my trust. But it was uh, one of those things she did by faith, and every once in a while I'd have to chase her out to go spend some time with her girlfriends. I told her, no problem, I'll handle the kids, it'll be a piece of cake. So she left and uh, went out with her girlfriends, and I threw all the kids in our, in our van and uh, drove them off to McDonald's, and it was uh, just in time to, to match up with the rest of the massive crowd that was at McDonald's, and the place was just jam-packed with people. And we finally got our place in line, and I was trying to listen to all three of the voices of telling me what they wanted to eat. And it's one of those moments when you're trying to multitask, listen to all your kids, give them a good eye contact, touch on them, love on them, and then order this kind of stuff with the person at the counter. And all these people are kind of staring at you, hoping you get the order right so you would get out of their way so they could order their food. And the food all showed up at the counter, and I was piling it all on the on the trade, I was telling the kids, okay, let's get going and try to push our way out of the crowd. And I spied a table and I says, come on over here. I think there's a table. And all of a sudden, everything McDonald's stopped because of a blood curdling scream. And man, I was shocked and I turned around and the crowd just parted just like Moses at the Red Sea. And there on the counter where we had just been to order our food and, our, and, and, uh, and, and going through our entire order was our youngest son, three-year-old. Uh, Jeremy, I had placed him on the counter to sit him there while I was going through this whole process of ordering. And I did a good job of collecting all the food and gathering my other two kids, looking for a table, but I forgot my third kid. And so he just let out a wailing or a scream as the crowd closed up and he no longer could see us. Hey, don't forget me. I hate this place. Oh, I hate, I hate this. Nobody likes me. And I tell you, I ran up there and then all, of course, all the crowds kind of look at me. What kind of dad are you? said, I'm just substitute parent today. Just give me a break. Grab one kid. Grab the kid off the counter. And he was screaming and curling and crying into my shoulder and burying his face in, trying to carry the food. And the other two kids were kind of laughing at me. And, and I'm thinking to myself, man, oh, man, here right in the midst of all of this multitasking, my son was able to capture my attention. And he knew exactly how to do it. Blood-curdling scream of desperation. Now, there's an there's a interesting parallel between that whole concept. You probably have been in one of those situations as well. And uh, how in the world do you capture the attention of someone who's very important during a time of desperation in your life? Desperate time, pushing us to the point of calling out to someone and capturing their attention. Let's take that kind of theme and plug it into the scripture and ask ourselves, if we find ourselves in a desperate situation, how in the world do we ever capture the attention of an almighty God? Well, we're going to be looking at a fascinating passage of scripture today with a two-part focus, but with the same time a strong basis of similarity in between them. When I look at the life of Jesus Christ, I don't see just a hodgepodge of events recorded by these amazing authors in the Bible. Instead, I see them looking at the life of Jesus Christ categorically going through phases in the life of Jesus Christ. In one phase, Jesus Christ is being introduced. 
This is God's directive. This is God controlling the situation where he wants to tell who this Jesus is by the circumstances and the surroundings around him, by the witnesses and the testimony of people who know, and also by his amazing words that he spoke and amazing works that he performed. Now, after he goes through this tremendous time of introduction, tremendous time of showing his credentials, proving to everybody who needed to know, especially the religious leadership of the nation of Israel, that he was the Messiah that God had promised. They had already formulated an opinion that Jesus Christ was performing all these miraculous deeds, saying all these amazing things, not by the power of the Spirit, but by the power of Satan. At that particular juncture, when Jesus Christ knew that they had formulated their opinion, he kind of holds them at arm's length, holds them at bay, and he turns his attention to the disciples. So instead of letting them get to the point of bringing their decision to reject Jesus Christ to fruition, he holds them at bay, keeps them from making that final decision, turns his attention to the disciples because he wants to pour into their lives and train them to take over when he is taken out of the picture by the disbelief of the nation's leadership. So this is a phase that we find ourselves in when Christ is turning his attention to his disciples. And even though he's performing these amazing miracles that look very similar to the miracles that he's always done, the audience somehow now has changed. And that audience specifically is for the beneficiaries of those who are going to be enjoying Jesus Christ's amazing power. But even more than that, his disciples are with him, and they are watching Jesus Christ perform these amazing miracles, and as a result of all that, their faith is starting to grow. Because the miracles that Jesus Christ starts to perform start to go into certain categories. And today, we're going to see how Jesus Christ performs his amazing authority and his power to show his disciples that he has authority over the evil spiritual world, and he also has power over incurable diseases that allow him to show his sensitivity of dealing with an individual in a very tender way, as well as in a very powerful way, someone who is controlled by demons. Both of these amazing, particular, spectacular miracles, as well as sensitive miracles, dealing with demons as well as being with women who have a very tender moment of need, Jesus Christ does the same thing. He demonstrates his authority as a Messiah with the power from heaven, so his disciples could learn to believe in who Jesus is, that he has no limitations, and this is the one they believe in, and where they will place their faith. So that's a big picture of where we're going to be heading, and as we turn our attention to Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 43, and this is a great picture of the Joker. I always thought that that guy is evil-looking, and um, I, I never wanted to look at his face for very long. I still don't. I'm just glancing over my, my, uh, my slide as quickly as I can because it gives me nightmares thinking about his face. And um, then, of course, rest on the, the life and the face of a very sensitive, tender woman who is this particular juncture could not do anything for herself, nor could this little girl do anything for herself. And they're dependent upon others, but they focus, the father's focus of the little girl is on Jesus. And the focus of the woman is on Jesus as well. Well, let's uh, start off, first of all, with this very ugly episode with a wild man here in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And as we look at this passage of Scripture, uh, we're going to go through this rather quickly so we get to a point that's going to really make a lot of difference for us as men. 
And uh, I'm struck that here in the Gospel of Mark, the shortest of uh, the four Gospel accounts of Christ, Mark, for some reason, by the power of the Spirit who inspires him, gives a lot of verse, gives a lot of words to describe this particular episode. It's not because we learn a lot about exercising demons, but we learn a lot about the episode. We learn a lot about Jesus. And put yourself in the frame of mind of being one of the disciples. What are you learning by watching Jesus in action during this incredible miracle? This is what the scripture says, Mark 5, beginning at verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And notice the names aren't there, the disciples, but definitely they are part of the they. So they are our exclusive audience that Jesus Christ is bringing with him throughout this entire episode. Very subtle, but very, very distinctive as we think about the life of Christ unfolding in these different categories. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Now it's possible for us to say, uh, what in the world do you do with this? Because the Mark account and the Matthew account, Matthew says there was more than one demoniac. Mark says there was only one. It's not so much a conflict of numbers, but Jesus Christ clearly is focusing on one of the pair of individuals who's controlled by demons. The one who's the most flamboyant, the one who's the most outgoing, the one who's in the forefront, the other one in the background. I really personally don't have a problem with that conflict of numbers, with that kind of explanation. Makes perfect sense when you think about narrative literature. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Start to get a sense from verse 3 on how you're feeling about this guy. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one has, uh, was strong enough to subdue him night and day among the tombs and in the hills. He would cry out and cut himself with stones. Now, there's not so much the importance that, wow, when a demon gets a hold of somebody, they've got this amazing sense of physical power. Now, I suppose we can start there at a superficial level. But probably if we were there with the disciples, we would be feeling something as we watch this demoniac approach Jesus Christ and hearing about his reputation. Scary. Making us feel internally uncomfortable. Because his angry expression and his actions consistent with that anger, regardless of where the source was, this symptom of his anger, his power, and his vicious activity That's what I think the disciples were seeing. And I don't know how you feel when you're around a guy who loses it, absolutely gone maniacal. There's a couple of those guys who drive the Interstate 10 freeway between here and Katy. And uh, one of those guys is in a pickup truck. I hope it's not your truck. It's a dually, so it's got four wheels in the back. And he was trying to get on the freeway, driving very aggressively during a very busy time. And so I just flashed my lights to let him know I'd let him in. Well, he must have been in a mindset of anger and frustration. Because <clears throat> he must have thought that when I flashed my lights to let him in, as, hey, I, I see you're there, go ahead, no problem. He must have thought that I was flashing him because I didn't like what he was doing. He was already in that mindset. He slammed on his brakes, so he was laying rubber on the freeway. And his truck turned a quarter angle. It's like a quartering away shot on a white-tailed trophy buck. He slid that way, came to a full stop, so I had to slam on my brakes, come into a full stop, and I looked kind of surprised at him. And he was saying some things that I could not hear, 
But with that Texas accent now in my mind about how to read lips, I would not want to repeat those words. And so I just waited patiently for him. I didn't get angry or anything and didn't flash my lights anymore. I thought, well, that's going to really tick him off again. So I just patiently waited for him because angry people have very little patience. You can wait him out. It doesn't take long. Finally, he realized that all these cars are stopping because he had stopped them. So he felt this sense of power, I suppose. He was in a hurry. Why don't you just keep on going? So he finally took off and went. And I was thinking to myself, man, there's a guy who's got an angry temper. And I don't know if he's going home to family or going home to friends or going to an appointment. But whoever he's going to see are going to become the victims of that angry temper. If he does something so simple as doing what he did after my gesture of kindness and courtesy. How do you feel when you're around another human being, a guy who loses his temper? That's what these disciples are watching. And they're thinking to themselves, man, I don't know how to deal with this. I'm glad Jesus is between me and that guy. And Jesus Christ has absolutely no problem. He does not hesitate. He does not hiccup, not whatsoever. So the scripture goes on here and says, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell at his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. Why did he say that? Because he knows something about the supernatural world and his future judgment includes penalty and judgment. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you evil spirit. When Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. Now, some people will look at this and you might hear someone say, well, in order to exercise a demon, you've got to find out his name, address him by name before you can ever kick him out. That's the pattern that Jesus gave us. That's not what the scripture says. Jesus Christ is simply asking his name for the purpose not of Jesus Christ being ignorant of it, but Jesus Christ is simply trying to identify this demon for the sake of how these disciples can understand that Christ has command over the supernatural evil world. And he begged Jesus again and again, do not send us out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding in a nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the evil spirits came out and went to the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. There's something about this particular passage of scripture and this a miracle that most of us remember. What would it be like to see a herd of 2,000 pigs suddenly go absolutely berserk and commit wholesale group suicide? The viciousness and the weirdness and the bizarre nature of that entire picture would cause us to be incredibly unsettled. Why in the world does God bring this here? We have no idea. The passage never tells us. But you get the feeling that there's something so bizarre going on here, but Jesus Christ and the power of God has absolutely no problem staying calm. Now, gentlemen, I know that this is probably going to be a tough one. But when we look at a passage of Scripture like this and see the bizarre nature of evil manifesting itself with a temper and with anger that is totally out of control, It makes everybody else feel uncomfortable. We men, as a group, have a problem many times with a temper that loses itself. From the standpoint of what the scripture is seeming to reveal, 
There is nothing about a temper that is out of control that ever comes from God. Now, it's, it's possible to have a righteous indignation, no question. It's always focused. It's always under control. It's nothing wrong with a good emotional expression of anger because God says, if that happens, just make sure that the sun doesn't go down in your wrath. Make sure that it's temporary. Make sure that there's a, there's a limit to it. So there's control when there are limits. But if there's anger that's like a pot of water that boils over and is violent and overwhelming and it's difficult until you separate it from the heat, that kind of anger is something that the scripture seems to suggest to us very powerfully. God has nothing and wants nothing to do with it. So if you are here today and you have a temper that's oftentimes or every once in a while flies off the handle, ask yourself, how would your family describe those moments and how they feel? Now, one of the amazing things that the scripture tells us here is that after Jesus Christ exercises the demons from this guy, and the, the, those who are running off, who were watching the pigs, go off to see the owners. You guys got to get out here and see what happened to your investment because you might want to recalculate the, the bottom line of, of your finances for this quarter. So the owners go out there to realize that their pigs are gone. And they look at Jesus Christ and they look at the person who has a reputation, who was a maniac, who was in the tombs yelling, screaming, hurting himself. And the scripture describes what they see as when they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, they were afraid. Weird, isn't it? Now he's acting normal. Now they're afraid. But do you see that particular phrase? He was sitting there in his right mind. That particular phrase is actually a single word and it repeats itself a couple of times in scripture. One of the times that it repeats itself is in first uh, Peter chapter four, verse seven, when Peter writes, therefore, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear minded, self-controlled so that you can pray. First Peter four, seven, that phrase that he uses there, clear minded. That's the same single word that's used here for sitting there in his right mind. I'd like to posit this particular issue to you because when Peter says clear-mindedness is a prerequisite for effective prayer, that someone, if we look back and see how the word is illustrated here in Mark 5, not because it's the same author, but because it's the same term now illustrated. Someone who has a temper who flies out of control, I know that scripture says that person is not clear-minded. But when you take away the source or the reasons for that anger, that loss of temper, that vicious, violent behavior, whether it's in words or actions or just bizarre nature, when you can remove that, a person can be clear-minded and that person can be under control when it comes time for that anger to express itself. Now, if you are here and your wife is oftentimes afraid of you because you lose your temper... Pray about how you can discuss this with her. Let her know that when you lose your temper, you know that you're doing it and you don't like it. And you don't like intimidating her through your anger. If you want to demonstrate a kind of control where the evil world, whether it's demons or whatever the influence might be, we don't know exactly. We don't want to make that logical leap that it's always a part of demonology. Never. But we do know that when an angry temper flies off control, it's not from God. And if that could ever get under control, 
so that we are clear-minded, not mentally overwhelmed and, 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 and controlled by that temper and emotion that's out of, out of whack. Then we know, according to 1 Peter, that we are able to pray. Therefore, the end of all things is there. Be clear-minded, self-controlled, so that you can pray. And maybe some of us who are here, our prayer life really isn't that effective. Well, maybe it's not because of our posture or our practice or the time that we invest. Maybe it's simply because we are not clear-minded enough. And if tempers can be set aside and God be allowed to control whatever that is and our life gets out of whack, maybe we can trust him for amazing things to come. Well, Jesus Christ has this uh, amazing authority over the demons. Those who are hired to take care of them uh, are going to leave. They're going to run away because they don't care about the pigs. They only care about getting paid to watch them. And everyone comes out here to see that this guy is in his right mind. But notice here in the Gospel of Mark, not like in the Gospel of Luke, Mark mentions to the owners, oh, by the way, it's also about your pigs. It's not just about Jesus, not about the demoniacs, but it's about your economic investment. That particular phrase and mention by the hirelings to the owners of the pigs is here in the Gospel of Mark. Now, that doesn't have anything to do with us guys who are more concerned about money that oftentimes becomes one of the reasons why we get set off with our angry temper, or, or does it? Maybe money issues becomes part of the common reason why we lose our temper over something. It certainly is part of the economic issue that's here. And of all things, the oddity that these are now individuals who are afraid of what they see, which is now normal, where evil has now been dissipated, and because they are afraid of what's normal, they ask Jesus to leave. Now, there's something here about the spiritual nature of what the disciples are seeing. When Jesus Christ demonstrates his power from heaven, and he overcomes the supernatural evil world, those who do not know Jesus as Messiah are uncomfortable, and they want nothing to do with Jesus. That simple formula spiritually is one that each one of us should remember when we go to the workplace, when we run into our neighbors, when we see our relatives during this holiday season. Those who do not know Jesus, when they're confronted with the peace of Jesus and the life of somebody else who's now calm, who's now under control because Jesus made a difference in their life, they are uncomfortable with us. So that should not be a point of rejection or the point of us being quiet, but a realization that now the presence of the supernatural presence of our Savior Jesus with us is now having an influence on the lives of those who don't know the Messiah. Pretty powerful lesson, not from what Jesus Christ said, but a clear picture of watching this story and this amazing narrative take place. Well, there's more begging through this whole process because a man who's now been exercised of the demons, he follows after Jesus as Jesus and his disciples get back on the boat. And you ever notice that they came all the way across the lake, got out of the boat, confronted this guy, got rid of the demons. And they turn around and get back in the boat. Uh, aren't you going to go to Target? Aren't you going to go to Costco? Isn't that, isn't that why you came over here? Why, why are you leaving now? It is amazing when you start to think about, well, what is this? So the man who's been freed from the demons says, Jesus, I want to go with you. And he begs Jesus to go with him. 
in the same word, in the same kind of dynamic as the demons beg Jesus. Don't send us off to oblivion. Send us instead into this group of pigs. The same approach to Jesus because he is the one with all power. He is the one who's the son of God. He is the one with a messianic presence. Can you imagine being one of the 12 and watching this whole thing transpire in front of you? Being overwhelmed at the choice you made to put your faith in who Jesus is. It's all going on in your mind. Wow, this Jesus is amazing. Power over the demons. Power now to free this man. Power now to draw this man who was once overwhelmed by the demons, now is begging to follow Jesus. And we have the privilege of being called by him and following after him. This is an amazing story, not of lessons, not of, not of uh, pinpoint highlights, but instead of a story that's transpiring with a lesson that should be highly, powerfully, loudly spoken to every one of our spirits. So instead, Jesus says, no, I want you to go tell your story. The people that you know, your relatives, anybody, anybody you have a connection with, stay here on this side of the lake, the people you, who know you. Just go back to them. And I want you to give them a 25-hour lesson on the best apologetic that you've learned from this experience. Use overhead projector if you have it. If you've got PowerPoint, use that. And I want you to write a book that you're going to publish there in your own language. Jesus Christ doesn't say any of that. He doesn't say go back and, 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 and argue. He doesn't say go over there and show them how smart you are now with theology. He said, just go tell them what happened to you. Tell them your story. He doesn't say, whether well, make them believe. He doesn't say, make your own disciples at this point. He's just simply telling them the importance of telling others what has happened to us. You're not responsible whether they reject it or accept it. You're responsible just to tell your story. Evangelism is not about us going out there and coming back and say, man, man, I won 12 people to Jesus Christ. It's us just going out there and telling the story and let God provide whatever the results are. Now, one of my top students that I've ever had the privilege of having in my classroom is, is now a pastor in York, Pennsylvania. He's been there for now just a little over a year. He's invited me back, and I'm going to go back there. I'm going to go out there tomorrow, and I'll be preaching four times in two days. And the church is absolutely on fire. When he went up there in this little rural church, and it was just having some struggles. They had a big building, and it was only about a third full. Then they're now running multiple services. And since he went there just a little over a year ago, because of the gifts that God has given him, he's led over 150 people to Jesus Christ. Just himself. And that doesn't count all the people who are heads of homes that went home and told their wives and their kids. Now, he's got a real gift of evangelism. I don't. But I do get thrilled with the opportunity to tell people my story that God has given me. And that's all he wants any of us to do. We don't have to have a seminary education or a Bible college degree. We don't have to be an outstanding person who knows how to speak in front of a lot of people. Just tell them your story, what Jesus Christ has done for you. That's all God is suggesting that any of us do. Well, now we have this amazing story of two women in a desperate situation, a 12-year-old girl and a woman with 12 years of a bleeding problem. And it's a sandwich issue where he starts off with uh, the little girl and her father, Jairus, who's coming to beg Jesus to come and, and help his daughter who is dying because she's sick. And Jesus Christ says, okay, I'll go. But in the process of going, 
He gets waylaid by this woman who has a problem of bleeding. We don't know what the bleeding problem was. Some people think it's a woman issue. It's not necessarily that. The language in the scripture doesn't say it's only that. It could have been a bleeding cancerous tumor for all we know. We just don't know. But because of the bleeding, she was obviously then considered unclean. She can never go to any of the celebrations for the nation of Israel. So she's reminded of her problem. And the scriptures tell us in this whole process in the gospel of Mark compared to the gospel of Luke, Luke was a medical doctor. Uh, Mark was not. So Mark accounts this thing and said, she suffered under the hands of many doctors. That particular phrase is for some reason left out of the gospel of Luke. So when she went in for the second, second opinion and the third opinion, and the fourth opinion, spent all the money she had on these doctors Mark seemed to say, that's important, that's germane, but Luke for somehow thought, well, Mark could probably take care of that. I'll need to include that in my gospel. So there's this situation where these two women are set up here in juxtaposition like this, and it's not like the demon possession. It's not this wild, crazy control of the supernatural spiritual world. Instead, there's a strong sense of desperation from helpless women. Again, you notice that the disciples got in the boat, they brought Jesus Christ back, probably to the area of Capernaum. They're there with Jesus watching this whole thing in silence. They're learning, wow, this Jesus that we call the Messiah and we're following him by faith? He has the power to throw out demons and restore someone back to normal health. Wow, Jesus now facing a little girl who's about ready to die and now waylaid by a woman who's got this issue of blood that none of the best doctors in our area could help her. In fact, they made her worse. What's Jesus going to do now? So from this particular standpoint, we have faith in action as uh, this plea for someone else by the father for his daughter is occurring here. We've learned through looking at the scripture that faith and the benefits of faith can oftentimes be transferable. It's not just about us that we pray for, put our faith in, but sometimes our faith in Jesus on behalf of somebody else, incredibly effective. We can press our desperation into focus on who Jesus is and our confidence in him. Show our faith in the best way that we can. So when this woman with the issue of blood is coming up to Jesus and a crowd that's pressing Jesus, they're pushing him, they're shoving him around, and this woman thinks, if I can just touch his garment, I'll be healed. And she touches her, his garment, and she's instantaneously healed. So Jesus Christ turns around and says, who touched me? His disciples thought, boy, Jesus is losing it. Well, anyway, who touched him? Everybody touched him. But Jesus Christ turned and asked that question, who touched me? Not again because Jesus Christ was ignorant. But he gave an invitation to the woman to say, I did it. I had a faith that somehow you could help me in my desperate situation. Nothing in scripture says, hey, this is what you do. Get a garment that's been blessed supernaturally. Touch it and you'll be healed. That's not what the scripture says. But the woman's faith allowed her in a crazy way to approach Jesus because he was her focus, not just his garment. She thought, if I can just get a little bit closer to Jesus, even touching his heart, the hem on his garment, I will be healed. God is not into formula. He is into faith. And if faith sometimes takes a bizarre twist, It's not up to me to say, hey, that's not what God said. I can't find it in Scripture. I've looked through all my theology books. Can't find it in my exegetical analysis. That won't work. But God doesn't do that. He honors the faith of someone as simple and as desperate as this woman. 
It's an amazing thing when we consider this whole idea about fear and faith together. We see this tremendous mixture in the life of this woman. She had faith that pushed her beyond the, the acceptance of what this crowd would be like. You realize even with the issue of blood, if she touched any other Jews that are around her, that would have caused them to be unclean. But faith caused her to break social protocol in order to allow her faith in Jesus Christ to be a focus. Amazingly astonished at this whole idea of faith when it comes to the area of obedience. Not only that, with regard to this woman, but also the faith of that father. When someone comes to him, one of his servants says, don't bother the master anymore. Your daughter has died. Well, you notice that here in the midst of this amazing miracle, the woman who has had the issue of blood taken care of, that was a faith experience. Juxtaposition right next to it, right next to it, is a servant who comes to Jairus and says, don't bother me anymore, she's dead. No faith juxtaposed against amazing faith. And then Jesus Christ takes Jairus's simple faith that's starting to fade because of the news of his daughter being dead and Jesus Christ lifts it up. Let's go and see your daughter. She's not dead. She's only sleeping. And when the other people at the house hear that, they laugh and Jesus Christ dismisses those who laugh, who don't believe, who say it's no longer an issue where anybody could do a miracle. Jesus Christ allows his disciples, some of them to come with him. And Jesus Christ raises this girl from the dead. Not a resurrection, but a restoration. But he gives her her life back as this tremendous gift of faith of her father is demonstrated toward Jesus. Yeah, the miracles are amazing, both with the demoniac being freed, but also with the women. But don't just think about those miracles. Think about the disciples here in this episode where Jesus Christ is bringing along his disciples instead of giving them a long, long lecture. He says, watch me in action and learn from this so that your faith grows. Because Jesus Christ knew that he was going to be taken out of the picture one day and the faith of the disciples was what was going to be necessary for the foundation of the church. Faith in who Jesus Christ is because he has authority over the supernatural world he has authority over all of us who have a problem with our angry temper, whatever the source might be. He has the power over death to be restored over any kind of health issue, no matter what it is. Because it's about Jesus, who he is, and how he wants to express himself as we live a life of faith, believing in him. Have a great time in your table talks, guys. Mm -hmm. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Fellowship Center of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day.